Black Doctors Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. On this week's episode, we're going to finish the second half of an interview with Dr. Hafia El-Tahir. She is an otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon practicing in Atlanta. We first met at an SNMA conference uh, several years ago, like six or seven or eight years ago, when she was a medical student applying to residency programs. She since finished residency and began practicing. Last week, we talked about her pathway into medicine. She is a Sudanese-American, second-generation American uh, Black woman physician, and such an inspiring story about how she worked hard, uh, networked, and made it to medical school and residency. This week, we are going to jump into the second half of her story. We talk specifically about navigating spaces that aren't diverse. So as an ENT resident in New Jersey, not many Black women ENT residents in her class. She was the only one, in fact. And for medical students across the country, we're getting right up to the date where you're going to verify your rank order list. And the question I often get from mentees is, you know, how do I look at these programs? Is it worth going to these different programs where there's not people there that look like me? So this episode is really for you and for you know medical students as you're looking to match the programs, whether you're first year, second year, third year, or even fourth year. And then as residents and faculty members for these different programs, how do we navigate these spaces where we are, in fact, a minority? So we're going to jump into that conversation for the rest of this episode. Before we do, though, um, do like people abreast of things that are unfolding and how we can support each other in this field of medicine. So over the weekend, a lot unfolded with the uh, specialty of dermatology. And I have to credit two physicians specifically, Dr. Caroline Robinson and Dr. Kula Svidinsky. She's an MD-PhD. They're both dermatologists, black women physicians, and their social media posts really opened my eyes up to what's going on within the specialty. One of the benefits and joys and responsibilities I have of hosting this space, of hosting this podcast, is using it to amplify voices and to support platforms that affect our roles, our careers as Black and underrepresented healthcare professionals, and ultimately will affect the care and the quality of care provided to our patients. So some of the background on the American Academy of Dermatology saga, this is uh, back in 1994, the American Academy of Dermatology created a diversity action task force. Now keep in mind kind of the backdrop of this is that 3.6% of dermatologists today are identifying as African-American or Black, and about 4.6% are Latin or or Hispanic American. So they created a diversity action task force. In 2016, there was data, there was an article that shed light on this lack of diversity amongst dermatologists in the U.S. There was a call to action to change these numbers, and one of the ways to institute this change was this diversity panel there was a diversity strategic plan that was developed, and subsequently there was pathway programs that were developed. There were a series of programs and programming to help develop career preparation for folks interested in dermatology. There were pipeline programs essentially from uh, undergrad and, and even high school on through 
pre-med courses and residency and medical school. So trying to increase the diversity in dermatology. The goal of the program was to increase the numbers of Black, Latino, and Indigenous residents by 150% by the year 2027. This initiative was started back in 2021. Recently, this effort has been targeted. And it's so important to kind of stay abreast of what's going on in the news because we saw this from the previous administration uh, where DEI efforts were rolled back and and, uh, the legal support for those was questioned. We saw this recently with Dr. Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, and how um, she was uh, ousted from office. And this is the normal trickle-down effect that you we should be expecting, unfortunately. So it's happening to dermatology now. There's nothing to say it can happen to anesthesia or internal medicine or surgery in the future. So it's our job to really band together and support these physicians that are advocating for uh, these residency programs and ultimately for the health of our patients through a diverse workforce. In late 2023, there was a group of dermatologists that drafted and submitted a resolution to the American Academy of Dermatology to dissolve DEI programs in dermatology that were currently being offered. Again, these were those those programs that were seeking to increase the diversity through these pipeline programs and supporting other efforts in the field. Now, these were just a group of dermatologists. is why it's so important to be active in some of your organizational bodies. And uh, they, they drafted this resolution. They proudly wrote their names and uh, said that we should get rid of these DEI efforts. In February, it kind of became better known. So this month, Black History Month, as it were, there is a public link to the resolution. You can visit the social media pages. There's links to this information. You can Google it online. And you can see a list of all the physicians and the people that thought this was a really good idea to get rid of DEI efforts. There was allegations that, oh, people are being doxxed because their information is being shared publicly in social media. And it's like, that's not the case. It's not the definition of being doxxed. This information was already publicly available. And, you know, if you feel that strongly about it, you should put your name behind it and support that. But now people want to, you know, make up rules and change definitions. This will culminate in March at the uh, American Academy of Dermatology meeting. It's going to be held in San Diego this year where they're going to vote on these different resolutions. If you dig into the content of what these resolutions says, so some of the verbiage is, whereas the role of DEI has evolved in recent months into a political movement that categorizes certain groups as oppressors and others as oppressed, creating a binary system of racist or anti-racist without allowance for neutrality. Um, if you, you unpack that statement that is in this resolution, it talks about DEI efforts recently evolving into political movements and just completely mischaracterizes uh, DEI efforts. They've been around for years. There is research, there's evidence that backs them, that supports them, that shows the improvement in care that these efforts provide, especially to patients that suffer from healthcare disparities, patients from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, But it it reduces it to, oh, in several months that it became a political movement. So fallacy right right there. It talks about a binary system of racist or anti-racist without allowance for neutrality. So if you're advocating for neutrality when it comes to racism, that's wild. Completely out of pocket. As you go on, I mean, you can read all this online. It talks about uh, DEI in its current form is believed to contribute to a decrease 
in the ability to provide unbiased and equal medical care for everyone as it is seen to foster division rather than unity. No evidence, no proof of this. All of the evidence we have is actually to the contrary and supports DEI efforts and increased diversity in healthcare to improve uh, culturally competent care, to improve health outcomes. The one of the most egregious statements and one of the ways that this resolution is gaining weight and traction is it actually uh, conflates DEI efforts with anti-Semitism. So words mean things, right? They have legit definitions, and anti-Semitism and DEI like they're not the same thing. It's it's ridiculous to even have to say that. But these are some of the allegations being made. And so these allegations of anti-Semitism, you know, nobody likes to be called anti-Semitic or nobody likes to be called racist or, or whatever. But um, using that as an, an excuse or a reason to abolish DEI efforts is asinine, it's cruel, it's going to result in harm to a lot of people if this resolution were to go through. So how can you help, number one, support these women that are out there, these uh, dermatologists, it's a small group. Follow them on social media. Dr. Robinson, Dr. Spadinsky will add their uh, links in the show notes to their social media. So you can follow them, support them. That engagement, that traction on their posts kind of helps it spread and get that message across so people know what's going on in these circles. If you are a member of the American Academy of Dermatology, there are uh, petitions and there's, there's ways you can vote and let your voice be known that you want to increase these DEI efforts and not decrease them. If you're attending the meeting in March, it's going to be March 8th that they have these advisory board meetings, uh, the 8th and the 10th. If you have the appropriate credentials, if you're going to be there in San Diego for the meeting, you know, show up, let your, your voice be heard, and we got to support these efforts. Again, just because it's happening in dermatology doesn't keep it from spilling over into other specialties. So we owe this to our colleagues. We owe this to the next generation of physicians, aspiring dermatologists. But again, there's nothing limiting this just to one specialty. And ultimately, we owe this to our patients. So shout out to Dr. Robinson, to Dr. Zwinski, and to uh, so many more that are out there um, holding it down. We are the minority. It's them against a lot of people in the fields of dermatology. We got to support these efforts. So uh, it's been a privilege to be able to use this platform to spread that information, hopefully uh, open up your eyes and you'll be able to help support um, uh, these DEI efforts. We're now going to jump back into the interview we started last week with Dr. Hafiel Tahir and learn about navigating these unsafe spaces. Talk about an unsafe space. We're going to talk about navigating this as a resident physician and evaluating these different educational programs as uh, resident or, or uh, medical students applying to residency. <laughs> so, Fia, we have to dig into a, a couple of things. One that one question I get often, I have a couple of mentees, and as we're recording this, it's the end of January, they're starting to pencil in their rank list. And what always comes up is, I want to go into this specialty. I'm worried about certain programs because I look online, there is no diversity. There's no Black people in the program. I don't know if I want to be the first, the only. I don't know if that's me. And I know what I've counseled people, but I'm curious as to your thoughts because you are African-American woman going into 
uh, very homogenous field, shall we say, with ENT, surgical field, so white male dominated. How did that affect you as you were looking at ENT programs? That's a really good question. I think for me, you know, if I will say that we, I did have one, one person of color, a black person in our department, and that was our vice chairman. So, but he was the only. So there wasn't a black female in our department. It was just me. And as far as residents and as far as our just whole entire department. And for me, I really wanted to get into ENT and there's so few programs. And so, you know, I think at that time, I really wasn't thinking in the sense of, I want to go somewhere where I know I'm going to have the mentorship that I need throughout those years. I was more so focused on you know, I really want to get into ENT. I want to go into it. I want to, you know, join a program that is strong, that's going to prepare me surgically. So when I'm out, I feel comfortable and prepared. I do think having that mentorship is very important. And, you know, it would have been very nice had I joined a program that did have a Black female, you know, ENT that was there that could really provide me the mentorship that I need. But one thing I will say is that I guess people just, have to always try and prioritize what's most important to them. Mm -hmm. If the mentorship is very important, if you feel that you would not thrive or do as well in an environment where you didn't have someone that looked like you, then that needs to be a priority when you're creating your rank list. If, you know, getting to getting into a program that will prepare you well and they may not have a mentor there, but you know that you can there's one somewhere else that you can reach out to, then be open. I grew up going to very diverse schools. And even my high school, well, I'll say my middle school and high school was actually predominantly white. So I was pretty used to like being in those type of environments and, but still never forgetting who I am. You know, my parents made sure of that. And it's something that I'm very proud of. So even being a resident at Rutgers, being the only black female, you know, they all know you know, they knew that, you know, I'm true to myself. I'm true to who I am, but I work well with people of any race and background. So I think that just maybe keeping in mind what's the most important to them. And if that mentorship and having someone that looks like them, you know, if that is very important, then that should be at the the top of their rank list. Yeah. And I don't know much about Rutgers, but how was the diversity in other graduate medical education, the staff, the patients outside of ENT? Oh, yeah. So that's very diverse. Now we're talking about New Jersey. So it's one of the (laughs) most diverse places in the United States, especially North Jersey. So that is one thing that I loved about being in the area. When it came to patients, like I work with patients of various like demographics and, you know, economical, economic statuses. So that was really great for me. And I think for all of the residents training, because when you're in Newark, like you're dealing with a lot of, you know, the underserved community. But then we also were in Livingston, which is in like the richest one of the, I think it may be the richest area in New Jersey. And one of our hospitals, main hospitals that we operate out of is located there. So, you know, it's learning how to deal with that subset of of patients. But New Jersey is very diverse. The university is very diverse. You have people from all backgrounds. You can't walk through the hall without running into someone that speaks, you know, I don't know. You got people that speak German, Russian, Arabic, Chinese, whatever, you know, so there's definitely not a lack of diversity. 
Yeah, I love that. And I, I was using you as a, a sounding board because that's mostly the advice. I echo what, what you said when, when mentees are, are asking me, one, you know, I say, what's most important for you? Is it being around people that look like you that's going to help you thrive and then prioritize that? And then number two, I usually focus on the diversity outside of that specific program because these graduate medical education programs, if you're in a big city, chances are there's some diversity somewhere in the hospital. And, and like I said in a previous episode, if not, make best friends with environmental services because you know they're probably Hispanic oh, yeah. or Black. So <laughs> those would be your people. They look out for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they look out for you. And not just even... Oh my gosh. Like I love the nurses, the OR staff. Be very open and accepting to, to everybody because you never know. There were cases that could have potentially gone later at night you know, than I would have liked because I was the one on call. But you get you have people that run in the board, you know, or in there. We'll get you in. We'll open up a room. Don't worry because you treat them well. And yeah. then they like, okay, we're here. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm curious about your interactions. You said the uh, the vice chair of the department was black. So, how was your interaction with him? So it's actually really good. His name is uh, Dr. Gene Anderson Eloy. He's uh, an amazing surgeon, like very talented. Just. You, all you got to do is Google him. He's great. And so it was, he's Haitian. So that was nice because there were times that, you know, he would just say, give me little tidbits of advice. You know, you have to stay on your game. You have to work hard, you know, those type things. And just again, he was one person, but it was one person in the department that held a very, you know, high position. Mm. And he looked like, you know, I look like him from that sense as far as our color. It wasn't a female. So some of the things that maybe I may have dealt with, he maybe hadn't. So again, I think that if a student is looking to have someone that really mirrors them, then, you know, make sure to to list that type of program or where that program can provide that a little higher. Yes, he was a kinfolk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, otherwise this would not have made it to the episode. But I, I think it's that's important because not all kinfolk, not all skinfolk are kinfolk. That's and true. so going through the process, and, and it goes both ways as an attending or somebody in a position of authority with trainees that are from your same ethnicity, you can only help them so much. Right. You, you, you have to do the work if you're a black resident or a fellow, like you gotta put in the work. If you're a black faculty you know, we do what we can to help our people. There's times where you'll do everything you can and then you get burned because it's the the resident just ain't acting right. It's man, right. you know, we tried to help you. But then, and then sometimes you're looking up to that person for help and they're just like... Mm. Not there reaching. Yeah. They're not reaching back. I would also say too, just as a resident for any minority or, you know, Black young person going into residency is... Don't fall off your game. Yeah. Do work hard because the harder you work, the more people will want to help you. Those mentors will want to help you. No one wants to be embarrassed that they put themselves out there and then you don't do your part, you know, and then the whole department talks about it and knows and, you know, and then you can't expect someone to, like you said, do the work for you. Put your best foot forward. And then when people see that you're making the effort and it's truly there, they people want to help. You know, yeah. there were times in the OR where I would work with Dr. Eloy and I'd be like, hey, I really want you to teach me today because there are certain cases you're just watching, you know, if you're not the primary surgeon. Right, right. And there were days I'd be like, all right, I want you to teach me. 
And we, it would just be such a good time, just him going through, walking through the case and what he's doing and what I should be looking for. And these are things you don't want to miss. And so him knowing that I had that desire to learn from him in those moments, I think went a long way. Yeah. In, in healthcare, when we have attendings that look like us, like most of them will do everything they can to help that they do have to be careful to make sure that they're not setting us up for failure by saying, oh, you're a favorite and they gave right. you extra attention or they looked out for you. And sometimes whether you have that representation or not, your, some of your best mentorship or mentors can be people that don't look like you. Yeah. And I agree with that. I had other attendings. Again, they didn't look like me. But when I knew anytime I needed... I had a question or I needed advice. Like I could text them. It was no problem at all, you know? And that's very meaningful for me. And that's... So for me personally, having mentorship, of course, when people look like you is amazing. Like it's priceless. But I think you can also find it in other places too. So that wasn't my, you know, deal breaker for me going into that program. Gosh. And for people that are interested in otolaryngology or interested in other like extremely competitive specialties, what are some of your recommendations for for them? Work really hard in med school. (laughs) Do really well with your clinical rotations. And even when you are doing sub... Especially when you're doing sub-eyes, work hard. Like show... You should mimic what it would be like to actually be a resident there. You know, that's what the residents want to see. Is this going to be someone that would work well with the rest of the team. You know, they have a good work ethic. They're not the first ones trying to leave and asking, can I leave? Wait to be dismissed. You know, be appropriate because some people can not be. And yeah, just like I said, work really hard, express interest. And I know that the USMLE is a little different now. Step one, I think it's just pass fail. So it's a little different as far as, you know, how high you necessarily need to score. But don't be afraid to ask programs, what is it that you guys are looking for? And especially if you're able to get contacts with the current residents, some people and programs really prioritize your publications, like how published are you, things like that. Some really want people when they come to visit to see like how do they mesh with the other residents? How will they really care for the patients? And you know, if you have an opportunity to scrub a case and assist, be attentive, ask questions, read up on the case beforehand, you know, in case the attending decides to pimp you, at least have some, nobody's expecting you to know all the answers or to even yeah. know the answer, but have a general idea. Don't be completely clueless as to what's yeah. going on. Some of the finer things that you can present in that is when you don't know the answer, how do you communicate that? Because that shows a communication skill. Yeah. It's tough to say, I don't know, and still sound intelligent. Yeah. I see... So I've had so many medical students, residents that just... I know you don't know the answer, but you're going to BS me. And then you just wasted two minutes of my time. Yeah. When I know you didn't know the answer, <laughs> you could have just said that and we could have been... Right. So, so part of it is how you present yourself. And then what you mentioned, the questions that you ask, You know, what is this program looking for? It shows a level of maturity that you were trying to improve yourself so you can bring that to whatever program you're looking for. Right. And also take the time to like you're going and you're trying to show yourself off, but you're interview them in a way, you know, is this where you really want to be? Really? There are places where you go and you may interview and you say, oh, this isn't like culture that I'm looking for. Or, you know, I don't feel like 
this is the right fit for me. So maybe it really isn't the right fit. And yeah, I remember my aunt, actually, one of my aunts told me when I went to interview, she was like, don't be nervous when you go in there and you're interviewing or you're doing your sub envision yourself there. Like you're already there, you're in the role, just manifest it. So if you know that you visited a place and you really liked it and you're hoping to match there, when you go and you're interviewing and you're amongst the current residents that are there, whether it's the dinner the night before or the lunch, you know, on the interview day, like really manifest that you belong there and you see yourself working with those people. Yeah, I love that. And and I want to close by going back to the beginning because one of the things you did really early on was networking. You found the ENT position that you were their banker and then that provides them that initial mentorship. And some things that I've done is I will scour a list of attendings for a program and see, did anybody go to Howard University College of Medicine? I've done that for other practices that I've interviewed at and making those connections and and using that network to your advantage can really help you get your foot in the door sometimes. Oh yeah, I totally agree. And don't be afraid. Like you have to let that guard down, you know, the worst that any the worst thing anybody could tell you is no. And you have no yeah. idea whether or not they will tell you no until you ask. That's literally the worst. So, <laughs> and when you think about it that way, there should be no limit. There should be no reason not to. I reached out to that ENT. And at that time, I really, I figured he would remember me, but I wasn't 100% sure because it had already been several months, like over six months since I've been there. And he knew my face, but I don't really know that he knew, really knew my name. You know, he just saw me as the banker. And so when I'm calling his office and going through his secretaries and all that to finally get to him, I'm like, hey, this is Hafia. I don't know if you remember me or not, you know, so it can be a little awkward, but at the end of the day, it's had I not asked to, you know, spend that time with him and to learn from him, I probably wouldn't actually, I, I know I wouldn't be here, honestly, wow. because yeah. I never, I didn't grow up going to an ENT. I never had ENT issues. I was never the kid that put things in my nose. And I'm saying, not saying <laughs> I was a good kid. I just, I, I never did. I didn't have foreign bodies in my ears and stuff. I never had tubes. I still have my tonsils. So I didn't even know what an ENT was. So I credit, you know, myself for putting myself out there and I credit him for being very accepting and welcoming. Have you talked to him since? So I talked to him in medical school, but and actually when I matched into residency, I talked to him, but unfortunately, and I'm ashamed to say, but since I went through residency and now I have not reached out to him. So <laughs> now I will since you <laughs> put me on the spot. <laughs> I definitely awesome. Will. Gosh, well, I have really enjoyed catching up, hearing your story and hearing everything that you went through to get to the success that you have today. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice speaking to you too. And it's been a while. A lot's happened in your life too. Yeah. Congratulations on everything. I, like I've been following you too on social media. And so I'm very happy for you. And like I said, very inspiring. Like I just... It, all my friends know about you. I'm like, remember right. Steven? He's the anesthesiologist. Oh, <laughs> Chicago. They're like, oh, yeah. Because I just remember when I was like, man, maybe Steven might know of somebody that can give me some advice to get here because I really didn't know. Like, I really was, I was very lost, you know, in the process. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's where I was uh, back before I got into med school. So the, the least I yeah. can do is, is hopefully pay it forward. Yeah. I do so, like, to close on 
something that you found inspiring recently? Whatever it is, whether it's a book, movie. Something that I found. So I have, I'm a quotes person. So it's mm. probably a quote that I have found inspiring. But let me, I have them in my phone. Do you mind yeah. if yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull it out. In the meanwhile, I'll tell. <laughs> mine is this... Okay. Uh, piece of art that I, I just hung behind me and I put up on social media. And it's by Dathan Kane. He is a black artist out of Virginia. So while I was stationed there, he had a couple of murals. He likes to paint in black and white, these different shapes. And just a really cool down-to-earth guy. Ran into him at some art show and then have you know picked up a couple of his pieces. But He's he's just super chill and humble. And I always appreciate that in people that are just real and down to earth. So he's been doing really well with art. He just gets up every day and does his painting. And I think he collaborated with Pharrell for one of his concerts. And he's getting out there, but just so proud of him and, and the things that he's accomplished. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Actually, like I said, I noticed it behind you. And did you frame it in the red or did he frame I did. It the- I did. Because he, so he frames in like dark earth tones. Okay. But this was just a print, so it didn't come frame. So I bought this frame online. Oh, no, I like it. It's nice. It definitely, it actually, instead of taking away, because the red is what has the most color, right? But it actually makes the artwork stand out more. Yeah. Yeah, than the frame itself. But let me find my, <laughs> I have my little, my list of quotes. A list here. of quotes. That's been a quote yes. person. And no, you're not going to quote Martin Luther King, are you? No. No. <laughs> No, not more Luther King. We just made it through the this year's round of MLK quotes from any and everybody that wanted to quote what the Reverend had to say. Oh, yeah. In context, <laughs> out of context. Oh, this is my favorite one. So I don't know if you know of this. She's like a motivational speaker. Her name is Brene Brown. Have you yeah. heard of her before? She has said that. Okay. Should so, I read? Should um, I listen to her books? I haven't really got on the bandwagon yet. Her books are good, but the, she did a TED Talk and it's really good. Um, and so it's on Netflix, so you should check it out. Okay. Um, yeah, but um, this is a quote that she said is vulnerability is showing up when you don't know the outcome. So it is, it's true. It's, you know, when you're vulnerable, you're putting yourself out there, regardless of what it is, whether you're sharing something about yeah. yourself with someone, whether you are, like I said, Going for something like I reached out to Dr. Gardner, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, but it was a very vulnerable moment to do that, not knowing what the outcome would be. I could have been rejected. And and that, you know, translates in many aspects of our lives is that when we're very vulnerable, we don't know, but it actually is a great measure of courage to be able to do that. And so I think that's very inspirational. I like it. I might be too vulnerable because I just be out here doing stuff. Really? <laughs> and I'm not. I need to. That's something I do work on. So that's the reason why it resonated with me because I'm oh, like, yeah, I like, you know, that. it's very easy if you're not a very like open and vulnerable person, especially if there may have been some trauma in your life or something mm. that has made you not want to be that way. You know, when you do put yourself out there, it's almost, was that a bad move? That's but true. Yeah. I like that because yeah, I share a lot of stuff, but then on the same token, there's a lot of stuff I don't like. I was talking to Bianca; she's a psychiatrist that is on the show frequently, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I'm just now feeling like I'm a real podcaster." And we're going on to four years in the show because I still like You're honestly don't I I don't like being in front of people and talking. So thank you for 
talking for the last you know half hour, so I didn't have to. <laughs> I think that your podcast is great. And I can't thank you enough for inviting me. I actually felt so honored. I was like, oh, he asked me? A little old oh me? So thank we, you. Waited uh, five years for this. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Alta here. Thank you so much for coming on the Black Doctors Podcast and sharing your practice and your, your specialty of ENT. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, we're, to... we're, we're here because representation matters. It matters.